Last week, we engaged a couple of scenes that were less spectacular than the week before. We saw no miraculous birth. We saw no resurrection from the dead. But we did continue to see the principle that we just can't escape at this point in the Bible, or really any part of the Bible for that matter. And the principle is this. We see over and over again God's gracious compassion for and his gracious provision to all kinds of people with all kinds of needs in all kinds of ways. We saw God's gracious concern and his provision for our simple daily needs last week, like food. Remember, we talked about that poisonous stew that was made well. Remember, we talked about that bread and the grain that was multiplied in order to feed the crowd that was sitting at the feet of Elisha at this point. I told you three things by way of application last week. Number one, we must learn to turn to the Lord in our times of need. Whether those needs are once-in-a-lifetime major needs or whether they are daily, repetitive, smaller needs, we must turn to the Lord to find our help. I told you that he takes care of us in a variety of different ways. Sometimes he takes care of us through normal and natural means that are very explainable. And sometimes he takes care of us through abnormal and supernatural means that are inexplicable. Things like miracles, signs, and wonders. And either way, it's the Lord who is taking care of us. Either way, it is the Lord who is providing for us every step of the way. And then finally, most importantly, last week I told you that Jesus is better. As, as we look at Elisha, as we look at all the neat things that the Lord does through him, I want you to see that Jesus is better. When we, when we transition into the Gospels, we see Jesus feeding people in a way that is uh, superior to Elisha. He feeds a multitude, 5,000 men, not to mention the women and children, with just five loaves and two fish. Jesus does it better, but Jesus gives life uh, that is better than, than Elisha could ever give. In fact, Jesus says in the context of feeding this multitude of people, he says, I am the bread of life, and he who eats of this bread will, will, will never hunger again and will be sustained to eternal life. And I told you that Jesus is the bread of life, and I invited you to take and feast on the bread of life that is the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in what he has done for you on the cross. Well, this week we're going to continue to see that same principle at play, the same thing we've seen several times already, that God is gracious in his compassion for and his provision to all kinds of people with all kinds of needs in all kinds of ways. And we're going to see that today through this remarkable story of healing. But what I want us to see is a greater thing than that this morning. I want us to see more than just a remarkable healing of a leper this morning. I am confident that this story about Naaman is a small picture of the big gospel truth of conversion. And what I hope you will see today is God's gracious provision for and his gracious compassion toward all kinds of people with all kinds of needs in all kinds of ways. That that is ultimately on display in the way he saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I think we can see that in the story we will read today. We're going to cover a ton of ground, 15 verses today, and I want you to see so much more than just a leper who is healed today. I want you to see today the hope of salvation for all kinds of people all around the world through Christ alone. So look for that today as we read uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. This is what God's word says. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, or, or some of your translations say Syria there, uh, Aram or Syria, same, same, okay? Um, he was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. 
The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We ask that you would open our eyes today to the glories of the gospel in this passage. Help us to see your desire and your design to save men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Help us to see our total desperation apart from Christ, our dirtiness, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our rebellion, our pride, our hopelessness apart from Christ. Help us to see the importance and the powerful impact of a faithful witness even in the midst of a difficult time. Help us to respond rightly to the gospel commands of repent and believe with humble obedience and faith. Break us, we pray, of our pride and self-sufficiency and bring us all to the cross to find hope of a restored relationship with you and a life that never ends. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a ton 
a ton going on in, in this text today. And uh, I feel in some ways that what we're going to do in these few minutes we have together is only going to scratch the surface, but I hope it piques your interest a little bit to dive in a little deeper and look at some of these details that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just mention and then move on pretty quickly uh, a few of them. I hope you'll dive into those things uh, while we get the big picture of conversion. I'm, I'm arguing today that what you are seeing in the story about Naaman is Naaman's conversion. Not just Naaman's healing of leprosy, but his conversion to faith in Yahweh. And what I'm going to argue beyond that is that the story of Naaman's conversion is, uh, is uh, an allegory of the story of conversion of every, everyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what it looks like to meet Jesus and have your life forever changed. So let's, let's be introduced to Naaman in verse 1. We're introduced to this guy right off the bat. He seems to come out of nowhere. And we've tried to look closely at the characters involved in all of these miracles that Elisha is performing. We've tried to compare those uh, to show that, that the Lord is at work among a variety of people, all kinds of people. Here's what I want you to know about Naaman. Naaman is the man. I mean, he just really is. He is at the top of his game. Look at all the ways he's described in verse 1. Captain of the army, great man with his master, highly respected. The Lord had given victory to him. He was a valiant warrior. Naaman is the man and well known. That's number one. Number two, Naaman was an outsider. He, he's not an Israelite. He, he's not a descendant of Abraham. He's an outsider. He's a Syrian. He's an Aramean. Whichever, whichever way you want to call it, he's an outsider. He's a pagan. He's a Gentile from the outside. And the last thing we learn about him, number three, is he's a leper. And, and the way that comes out in the text is like you get all of these things like Naaman's the man, Naaman's the man, Naaman's the man, and he's a leper. And that just brings the rest of it crashing down. His leprosy is a big deal. Many scholars argue that leprosy best represents the problem of sin in the Old Testament. As far as physical maladies go, uh, leprosy is the best parallel to sinfulness in the Old Testament. It makes you miserable. It ruins your life. It puts you on the outside, not just with your community, but with God. Leprosy puts you on the outside of worship uh, of the Lord, and only God can heal it. As you read through the Old Testament, you get into all that stuff with the priests and the inspection of leprosy. One of the things you learn is that the priests can't do anything about it. The doctors can't do anything about it. If you're going to be healed of leprosy, the Lord is the one who has to do it. And so what I want you to see is the fact that he has leprosy is teaching us that he has the condition of sin in his life. Like that's the parallel. That's the spiritual truth behind all of this. And the principle is this, no matter who you are, no matter whether you're the, the poor widow who's about to lose everything or whether you're the, the Shunammite lady who seems to have everything except a child or whether you're Naaman who is the man in Syria, no matter who you are, everyone's ultimate need is exactly the same. Everyone on the planet's ultimate need is exactly the same. We need reconciliation to God. We need forgiveness of sins. We need justification. Arthur Pink says it like this in a way that only Arthur Pink could. He says, you may occupy a good position in this world, even an intimate station in the affairs of this life. You may have made good in your vocation and wrought praiseworthy achievements by human standards. You may be honorable in the sight of your fellows. But how do you appear in the eyes of God? A leper. A leper. One whom his law pronounces unclean. One who is utterly unfit for his holy presence. 
And then he goes on and says, we must individualize this. Have you, my reader, realized this fact in your own case? Have you seen yourself in God's light? That apart from Christ, we're just like Naaman, a leper, hopeless and helpless. And we need to wrestle with that. For I fear, as a pastor, that many folks have never tasted of the desperation of lostness. They've never tasted of the desperation of leprosy. They've never felt the weight of their sinfulness and the wrath of God that they deserve. We need to wrestle with this. One last quick note, though, before we move on from verse 1. Notice that the text says that the victories that this pagan general enjoyed, which include victories over Israel, as we'll see in the next verse, he's got spoils of war because of a victory over Israel, that even the victories of this pagan general are ultimately by the hand of God. Did you see it in verse 1? It says, by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. It is the Lord who gave these victories. Talk about a declaration of his sovereign rule over all things. That it is not, it is not Naaman who is producing these victories. It is the Lord who is giving those victories even to Naaman. The Lord is sovereign over all things. You can dig into that more later. Now let's be introduced to this Israelite servant girl in verses 2 and 3. Naaman is big and important, right? And this girl is little. She's described as little in verse 2. And she is little in every possible way. She was taken from her home as spoils of war. Like Naaman came in and invaded her home and took her to be his captive slave. She was serving in the household of this pagan general specifically attending to his wife. This is not a glamorous life that this girl is living. This is not what this girl dreamed of when she was just a child playing with dolls. She, she wasn't playing saying, oh, I hope that someday I get captured from my home, taken from my family into a foreign land to serve the pagan general. Wife, it's not what she dreamed of. This is a difficult situation that she finds herself in. And in light of her plight, verse 3 is absolutely amazing. Look at what it says. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. She wants to see the suffering of her captor relieved. And she knows that there is a prophet in Israel through whom God does amazing things for people who have all kinds of needs. Is that how you would act if you were her? I mean, I, I want to wrestle with that because I think if I was her, I'd be like, serves you right. Got leprosy. Take me from my home. Make me serve your wife. I hope you rot away. I hope you suffer for a long time and die a miserable death. That would seem like the very natural thing, right, for this girl to think about her captor. But she doesn't think that way about her captor. She wants to see him experience the power of God and the cleansing that only God can provide. And so she speaks words of life. This little girl is incredible. And this little girl is a picture of us. You get that, right? Us in the church. Naaman is a picture of every man apart from Christ. But this little girl is designed to be a picture of those of us who have experienced the grace of God in our own lives. To the point that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves, we are called to be evangelists. We are called to be spokespersons, preachers, everywhere we are, even when we are in a difficult place. 
And we're in a difficult place right now, are we not? I mean, our whole culture is in a difficult place right now. So many people around us hurting, suffering, miserable, hopeless. And we're right in the middle of it with them. And we can do a couple of things. We can moan and groan and whine and complain. We can say, serves you right, world, for the way you're living. Or we can be like this little Israelite servant girl and say, there's hope. There is hope. And I know the one who can change your life. Let's speak life in the midst of the dead world. Let's say not, let me tell you about a prophet in Samaria. No, let's say, let me tell you about a man named Jesus who was and is God in the flesh, who died on a cross for the sins of all of his people, who rose again in victory over sin and death, and who gives life as a free gift, eternal life as a free gift. Let's be like this little girl and tell the world, even the world that is mistreating us, let's tell them about the hope that is found in Christ alone. Now let's be introduced to these kings. Look at verses 4 through 7. I love verse 4. As as Naaman receives this this word of good news, at least the story of good news from the Israelite girl, he immediately goes to his master, and it says he went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus spoke the Israelite girl. I I love the the shorthand in the Bible there, right? It doesn't repeat the whole story. It just says she said some stuff. Yada, 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 the girl said the thing, and and what what are we going to do about it, right? And the Aramean king, the Syrian king, sends word with Naaman to travel to seek this healing the little girl spoke of. But there's an ominous note in verse 5. As Naaman prepares to go, he loads up what is about $2 million worth of currency and 10 changes of clothes, which would have been worth a fortune in those days as well. And he gets ready to head off to pay for his healing. And we see right here that Naaman doesn't get it yet. He doesn't know that what he needs cannot be bought. And yet this is exactly what people tend to do with the gospel also. They gather up all their resources to try to bring to the table. They write up their resume of good works, their list of achievements, as if they bring something of value before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you that grace is free. The gift of salvation is a free gift. The gift of eternal life is a free gift. People have a hard time accepting that. People say, wait a minute, there must be a catch. And Naaman is struggling with that. You're going to see Naaman struggle with that as the story develops. My question is, what does Naaman have to offer the prophet? Nothing. He has nothing to offer the prophet. He has nothing to contribute. Even with all of his wealth and all of his power, the text says he was a powerful man, he was a valiant warrior, he was well-liked by his master, but he was a leper. And that put him in a powerless position. And then we see the king of Israel's response, which is so sad. The king of Israel seems totally clueless about all of this. He has no idea how to heal this guy. He doesn't know that he should cry out to his God to heal this man. His God has the power to heal this man. Nor does he ultimately call for Elisha. He doesn't know enough about what's going on to say, ooh, there's a guy who needs a healing. Elisha's the guy I should talk to about this. He's just totally clueless. And not only is he clueless, worse yet, he interprets this whole thing as an act of hostility that he thinks is going to bring about war once again between Israel and Syria. My, My point is this, when we talk about the king of Israel, He should have known what to do. 
He's the king of Israel, for crying out loud. He, he should have known who to call. He should have known what to do. He should have had a connection with God, but he held a position of power and authority over God's people, but he had no connection with the God of those people. Don't be that guy. <laughs> Don't be that guy. In fact, look at the contrast between the king of Israel and the little slave girl. The little slave girl that's been robbed from her house and taken to a foreign land, and yet she knows there's a, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you, who can change you. God is at work amongst his people. And the king of Israel is like, I've got no idea what to do. This guy's trying to pick a fight and cause a war. He should have known, and he didn't. And that little girl did. It's powerful, the contrast between the king of Israel and that little slave girl. Look at verse 8. We see Elisha come onto the scene. In verse 8 it says, It happened when Elisha, the man of God, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. He comes to the king, Elisha does, and offers a rebuke. Why did you tear your clothes? And he offers some relief. He says, I will take care of this. I will take care of this. He's going to heal this leper, the text says, so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And we want to be careful with that. We want to be careful with that so that he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. This is not Elisha trying to draw the spotlight to himself. There is only a prophet if there is a God speaking through the prophet, right? And so like we have seen several times already in the life and ministry of Elisha, we must see this statement as pointing to the one God being in Israel. It's not as if he says, let him know that I'm the man in Israel. He's saying so that this man will know that there is a God, essentially, that the one true God is in Israel. And I believe that's what Elisha is meaning because that's exactly what Naaman says at the end of the story, right? At the end of the story, after Naaman experiences this healing, he doesn't say, indeed, there is a prophet in Israel. He doesn't say, indeed, Elisha is the man. What does he say? Look at it in the text. He says, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So this is a statement that is ultimately pointing to the exclusivity of, of Yahweh as the one true God. Elisha's on the scene. And then in verses 9 through 14, the action really picks up. We see Naaman engaged with Elisha, and we see this healing take place. And when Naaman shows up to Elisha's house, how does he show up? Like the man, right? Shows up on his horse with all of his chariots, his entourage, and this vast fortune that he brings the text specifically includes this note about horses and chariots to show that in Naaman's mind, he is really somebody. He shows up for the healing with all of his resources. I wonder if we do the same thing when we come to hear the gospel. Do we come to hear the gospel because we know we have nothing? Or do we come to hear the gospel with all of our resources, with all of our resume, with all of our accolades. Naaman clearly doesn't understand grace yet, and it's going to take him a while to get there, and Elisha is going to be instrumental in getting him there. Because what does Elisha do when the man shows up at his house? Big, bad Naaman shows up at his house. Elisha doesn't even get off the couch. Did you catch that in the text? Elisha sends a servant. 
not some big welcoming party. He doesn't throw a feast. He sends his servant out of the house simply to tell Naaman, you need to go wash. You need to go wash in the Jordan seven times. One scholar said it's almost as if Elisha is being intentionally rude. He's not following any of the cultural protocols here. If someone comes to your house as a guest, you roll out the red carpet. If a dignitary from another land comes to your house as a guest, oh, you pull out all the stops then. And Elisha doesn't do any of that. Because what he is trying to teach Naaman is that he's not somebody, he's nobody. He is in desperate need of what only the Lord can provide. Naaman must be broken before he can be restored. And it's the same with us when it comes to conversion, right? We must be broken before we can be restored. And we want to skip that step sometimes. We want to totally bypass the hard news of the gospel, the hard news of God's holiness, the hard news of our sinfulness, the reality of judgment and wrath. We want to bypass all of that, or at least fast forward through it, to get to the good news of relief and reconciliation and restoration. And consequently, when we just zip right through uh, the, the bad news of the gospel to get to the good news of the gospel, the good news is not appreciated as it should be. Sam Winkleman said something fantastic Tuesday when we talked about this. He says, this process of being broken, he said, it makes grace so much sweeter when we understand what life is really like without it. That's gold. It makes grace so much sweeter when we realize what life is like without it. And Elisha is teaching Naaman what life is like without the grace of God. Look what happens with, with Naaman. He says uh, at one point in verse 11, But Naaman was furious when he hears this news from the servant to go wash in the Jordan. Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought. Circle that. Underline it. That is highly significant. Naaman said, I thought it would work this way. I thought the prophet would come out and do like a magic trick and a big gesture and cause a spectacle and I would be healed. I thought it was going to go one way. And he told me to go wash in that crummy Jordan River. We've got better rivers back in Syria. Naaman is absolutely furious because he had in his mind an expectation of how God would work in a particular situation. And when God didn't meet those expectations, he got mad and walked away. And we do it. Just the same way. We have preconceived ideas of what God should do or what God would do. And when he acts differently, we're all upset. This is idolatry, folks. When we create a God of our own preference, our own expectation. He's going to learn. He's going to learn that God will do what he's going to do the way he's going to do it. He's way off base. Naaman is. And yet, as he storms away in his little fit of rage, his little fit of self-righteous, prideful rage, what does the Lord do? He goes after him. This is incredible to me that Naaman comes all this way, then thumbs his nose at the prophet and storms off, and yet the Lord runs after him. Listen to me, friends. This is a story of God pursuing Naaman. It is not a story at all of Naaman pursuing God. And the story of the gospel, the story of your conversion, is a story of God pursuing you. Not you pursuing God. Naaman's got it all wrong, and yet God keeps going after him. 
And that's the way my story went. I had it all wrong. And yet he kept on pursuing me. And he did it through these servants, these pagan servants. They're a lot like the little girl. They're like the most unexpected evangelists in the story. And they may be coming from a whole different place than that little girl. They may be thinking, we're getting to keep all this money and get the healing. He hasn't asked us to do anything crazy like get circumcised in order to experience this. They're like, Naaman, if he had asked for a difficult thing, you would have done it, right? Naaman, if he had said, you've only got half the money you need, you would have gone right home and raised the rest and come right back. But the prophet has said, an easy thing. Just go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Why won't you do it? They appeal to the prophet's word in order to convince their master to do what he said. He's asked you to do a simple thing, they said. You would have done a hard thing, but he's asked a simple thing. I wonder how many people walk away from the offer of free grace because they say, like Naaman, it just can't be this easy. We have this idea that we must bring something to the table. And it comes from our pride. But as the story develops, what happens? Naaman seems to hear these guys, and he goes and dips himself. Look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Seven times he dips himself. Reminds us of the seven sneezes of the kid who was raised from the dead, right? We've talked a lot about how interesting the mechanics of all of this is. Like when we, when we get together and talk about this during the week, we, we want to know how it worked. Like when he dipped himself the first time, did something happen? Did like his leprosy start to get better? And then he, as he dipped himself multiple times, it got better and better and better? Or did nothing happen at all until the seventh time? We, we don't know those things. Maybe we can ask him uh, when, when we get to heaven. Um, we don't know how the mechanics worked. But we do know that this is what faith looks like, right? That Naaman eventually going to dip himself seven times in the river is what faith looks like. It is humble, trusting obedience. That's what faith looks like on the outside, right? Humble, trusting obedience. Naaman didn't get there directly. It took him a long way around. But eventually he got to the place where he humbly, faithfully, obeyed the word of God. Now, as you read this text, because, because you're a Baptist, you might want to read water baptism into the text and say, oh, this is another, another place we could go to make an apologetic about the way we do baptism. I don't think that's necessary here. Uh, I think that that is a road that, that you don't necessarily need to travel down, so we're not going to travel down it. But the best part of the whole story is verse 15, right? And we're going to pick up on verse 15 next week when we move forward. It says, when he returned to the man of God, clean, right, restored his skin like a little child. That word little is the same word that's used to describe the girl earlier on in the story, which is super interesting. He returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him. And he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That is a declaration of faith. That is a profession of faith. And you're going to see how his faith develops as the story progresses. So I think there are five applications today for us from the text. And the first one is big. First one is like the, the big umbrella over it all. And it's this. God pursues all kinds of people. God has a global mission 
to save a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God is a global God. The Lord Jesus Christ is a global Savior. And he is often pursuing the least likely candidates for this, like us, <laughs> right? We are the least likely candidates for salvation, and yet he pursued us. So God is pursuing all kinds of people to save people for himself, to create a people for himself. We also see in this text a little bit about the depravity of man, how every man is in need of a savior. Like as we've looked at these various stories, we want to see that there's no one who's too bad. There's no one who's so far gone that, that God can't change them. There's no one who's so far gone that God's grace cannot reach them, right? Naaman's a leper. There's no, no cure for that. Only God can cure that, and he does. We also learn in this that there's no one too good, as if they don't need to be reached. That lady, the Shunammite lady a couple weeks ago, she had it made, right? She was somebody. No one is too good as if they don't need to be reached. Every man, every woman, boy, girl on the planet is in need of a Savior. And the only Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see a lesson here about evangelism. Evangelism from that little girl who made herself useful despite her difficult circumstances. She made herself a conduit of compassion in spite of her own mistreatment. She is the picture of average, ordinary Joes and Janes doing eternally significant work. She is the picture of what every one of us should be. Simply doing what we're doing and telling people about the hope that is found in Christ alone. Listen to the way Raymond Dillard says it. He says, if God would allow us to scan the book of life, whose names would we find there? Many would be recorded there who came to faith because of the influence of famous preachers or prominent celebrities. Then he says this, but I suspect that a far, far greater number would be there because of the faithful witness and the hope-filled confidence of the humble people of this world. That's a good word, right? Like when you look at the book of life and, and you see thousands, millions of people who've come to faith in Christ. Some of them have come to faith because of Billy Graham. Somebody like that, some, some world famous evangelist. But probably more have come to faith because of their neighbor, their mom or dad, their grandma or grandpa, co-worker or a friend. Somebody that the world wouldn't know, just like that little Israelite servant girl. So be her. Be the evangelist. Even in a difficult context, be the one who says, I know a guy. I know you've got a problem, and I know the one who can take care of it for you. Let me introduce you to him. Let me introduce you to him. His name is Jesus Christ. Fourth, we see some lessons here about pride and our resistance to grace. And I believe that some of you are struggling with that even now. Some of you who've been in the church for a long time are struggling with the concept of free grace because of your pride. You want to earn it. And you hate when the preacher says you can't. Some of you are struggling with it in a unique way in that you don't want to be embarrassed 
by admitting your weakness and your inability to save yourself. In fact, I believe that some of you in this room are struggling with that even now because a lot of people in this room think you've already been saved. And it is your pride and your sense of self-sufficiency that is keeping you from standing up and saying, no, I wasn't, but now I am. I wasn't because I thought I could do it. All those years I thought I could do it. And now he's taught me I've got nothing to bring to the table and he has saved me by his grace alone. And, and, and it's that, that same pride that was in Naaman who went off in a rage that is keeping you from professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is tricky. He will try to convince us that we pay for salvation. It's not like you thought. It's a glorious gift that you do not deserve. And so therefore, the big application of the day is turn to the Lord. Number five, turn to the Lord. In your time of need, in your desperation as a leper, a sinner who cannot save himself, turn to the Lord. Repent and believe is the way you do that. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the healing that only he can bring. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this story that is so much like our story. How you rescue and redeem, how you save by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Help us to see your desire to save all kinds of people. Help us to see our total desperation apart from Christ. Help us to see the importance and the powerful impact of a faithful witness and make us that witness. And help us to respond rightly to the gospel commands of repent and believe. For those of us who have already been saved, that we would go on repenting, that we would go on believing. And for those who have never before, that they would repent and believe with humble obedience that is faith. God, move in hearts and change lives by your grace. In Christ's name we pray.